On this episode of Talking with Decision Makers, I'm sitting down with Dr. Cedric Williams, the founder and CEO of Legacy Consulting and Research. Hi, I'm Corey Sharp, and I'm the founder of Sharp Marketing and Media, a marketing and advertising agency that works with brands of all sizes to grow through impactful communication, compelling content, and ROI-driven advertising. Talking with Decision Makers is a podcast that chronicles my mission as a young entrepreneur to learn as much as I can from other leaders, executives, business owners, marketers, and really anyone that I think does interesting work. We'll dive into their work, their lives, and what they've learned along the way. I have known Cedric for about 10 years. We first met when he was leading a campus ministry while I was a student at Illinois State University. Since that time, Cedric has earned a PhD in clinical psychology from Fuller Theological Seminary, where he studied the relationship between occupational thriving and psychological well-being. He has also been in the military for over 18 years and serves as an infantry officer in the Army Reserve. Currently, though, he spends most of his time as the founder and CEO of Legacy Consulting and Research, where, reading from their website, they integrate psychological principles and social scientific research to explore and recommend solutions for organizations. Their services focus on occupational thriving, well-being, multicultural competence, resilience, and interpersonal communication for individuals, leaders, teams, and organizations. Cedric is thoughtful, intelligent, insightful, and engaging. Before we jump in though, I want to note that the audio quality is a little bit worse than normal for this episode. I think I might have made some mistakes in setting up the microphones, didn't get them set up quite right, and the audio was recorded using the built-in microphone on my phone, so bear with me on this one. Anyway, this is my super insightful conversation with Dr. Cedric Williams. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So, my name is Dr. Cedric Williams. Um, I am the founder and CEO of Legacy Consulting and Research Group. It was, um, it is a business that I founded in 2017 with a group of friends mm-hmm. while we were actually in graduate school at Fuller, um, Graduate School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Um, and really, you know, it's, our, our company is, is really meant to, to help people mm-hmm. to have an intersection of psychology and work. Okay. Right. So trying to figure out the best ways to be able to partner with people at work in order to increase occupational thriving, multicultural competence, resilience, psychological well-being. Um, so our company does a variety of different services, uh, workshops and training. We do career assessments. We do individual coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, we do leader development, research and evaluation uh, with a variety of different clients. Um, just to be able to help them bridge that intersection of psychological practices and principles into their work. Okay, and so that would mean putting together your PhDs in psychology. Yeah, so my PhD is in clinical psychology. Okay, mm-hmm. and then so what did you research? 
So my research uh, focused in on psychological well-being, occupational thriving, and positive interpersonal relationships. So well, a lot of my, um, my dissertation was really like a correlational study, just trying to figure out how do all of those connect with one okay. another, right? And were each of those, because some of them were clear that they were workplace focused, were each three of those like positive relationships, things like that, workplace focused as well? Yeah, it, for the most part, uh, some of the positive interpersonal relationships that we measured were the family relationships uh-huh. and the work relationships. But what we wanted to see was um, how do these work relationships affect the person's work and how do these family relationships affect a person's work? Yeah. And so what were some of the uh, evidence of things that you guys found in, in your research? Yeah. So one of the, I think like the, the biggest component of our research was that occupational thriving, uh-huh. which we, um, which I operationalized by looking at. Work for non-academic people, that means defined. <laughs> yeah, what I defined as, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, what I defined occupational thriving as was work engagement and work effectiveness. Uh-huh. Um, and so for work engagement and work effectiveness, they were under the umbrella of occupational thriving. Mm-hmm. And I found that occupational thriving actually contributed over um, half uh, of the variable amount of psychological well-being okay so when we think about psychological well-being and positive interpersonal relationships it was actually it was actually occupational thriving that accounted to more psychological well-being than the, the relationship than the positive interpersonal relationships so it now getting to more to conjecture zone yeah like is it kind of your notion that being uh satisfied with your work or whatever is a significant kind of contributor to the well-being like that's more important than maybe we think absolutely like um you know feeling good at work feeling like you're productive at work feeling that you are are doing a good job at work is a huge part of our sense of self it's a huge part of our sense of um um a component of our life so trying to enhance that and enhance that productivity, enhance that satisfaction, enhance that engagement is something that's really, really important and to focus in on. So that was, um, you know, well, what I looked at for, for years <laughs> in grad school. And, you know, it's so funny now because, like, I'm, you know, um, I think, you know, when you're doing something in grad school, you're just, for me, I was like, I'm just, like, trying to get this done. But as I was going through it, I actually really enjoyed it. And so trying to focus in mm-hmm. and kind of elaborate more on occupational thriving and psychological well-being and the variables that I put into psychological well-being, you know, because, you know, obviously you have to define it. Yeah. Um, as well. And so that was, it's, uh, that's always a process. So did you, did that kind of, the research you did there, not just your findings, but probably also the literature you read, did that mm-hmm. kind of bleed into, like, how legacy was formed and the types of things you guys focus on? Very much so. Because when I think about legacy, most people will not come to therapy, mm-hmm. right? If we think about the masses across, you know, we know that. that most people, most Americans, they're not going to come to come and sit down for a one-on-one conversation or a one-on-one, um, you know, psychotherapy session. But they do go to work. Mm-hmm. And so having people like myself go there, perform, or uh, administer 
psychoeducational presentations is something that's really important of just saying like, hey, look, psychology can actually inform your work environment and it can inform your well-being. It can inform your ability to connect with other people, to connect with your clients, connect with yourself. Um, yeah, so I think that it, you know, for the literature that I did during my dissertation was absolutely a catalyst mm -hmm. for launching legacy and kind of figuring out this is what I want to do. Yeah, some of the stuff you're talking about, it's a, it's a, a little more kind and altruistic than the version, but there's a television show called Billions. Okay. And it's a it's about a hedge fund. Okay. This, this hedge fund, they have uh, a clinical psychiatrist in office. Okay, interesting. To to meet with the traders, but it's a completely self serving like, if they're in their heads, they're not going to make good decisions. Kind oh of thing. my gosh! Yeah, yeah. That yeah. I'm just saying, <laughs> that is like completely opposite. Like we we would hope to to help people actually make good decisions and you know live the life that they. Um, it's going to be enhancing to them, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. instead of trying to, I guess, hoard money, you know. Yeah. Like, uh, so, um, one of the things you mentioned that um, Legacy does, uh, you said is resilience training. Yes. Um, and that's a word in the works here and then other places that I've heard tossed around. Mm -hmm. But for you and what you're doing, what does that look like? Like, what are you trying to help with for this resilience training? Yeah, so a lot of the resilience training that we've done so far has been with first responders. Okay. And so the first responder communities, whether it be um, fire, police, um, and then of course, like when I was a, a company commander in the military, I've been in the military for a long time, uh, actually 18 years this um, this week, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. You know, I think about it, it goes by so quickly, but um, you know, I would talk to my soldiers about yeah. resilience, and I still do, you know, that's something that we still talk about uh, even now. But the hope is when they walk away from the resilience um, training and workshops, that they have practical skills that they can apply in their everyday lives in order to become more resilient, Okay. right? And to apply it like, okay, when we think about what builds resiliency, community builds resiliency, when you're going through challenging things, to be able to talk about this with community, um, to be committed to the challenge, right? Uh, centering your cognitions, and so we kind of walk through, like, what does that mean to center your cognitions? How do you have an ability, or how do you learn the skill of, of mindfulness and try to be present in the moment? Try not to be, um, you know, uh, overcritical of self, right? During yeah. challenging times overcritical of others and so we kind of talk about all of those different things one of the things that i also do for resiliency for first responders is i do ptsd mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder recognition and management and so we kind of talk about like well how do you recognize when this happens um, what are the symptoms because a lot of people are like well this is just how i live right you know that's not a big deal i, I remember when i um, just got back from the deployment it was extremely what I would call is vigilant, and uh -huh. most of the military would call it vigilant. But you know, as far as like the the um, you know for psychology, we call that hyper vigilant. Okay. You know, because you're 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 very focused on you know like making sure that everything's okay, making uh -huh. sure your environment's so okay. So like like you would be home like maybe walking down the street and like 
your eyes would be darting around. Is that that kind of thing? Yes. Um, for me, it was mostly like in the in a vehicle. Okay. Right. So like, um, yeah, like that was really hard. You know, mm -hmm. just driving when I first got back from deployment in two thousand five. That was just really hard, just from being in Baghdad. There was a lot of car bombs, a lot of roadside mm -hmm. bombs. So you know what I mean. Like, it was one of those things where it was just kind of uneasy. Mm -hmm. um, so now I kind of take those experiences yeah. from the military, but I also take my experience from being um, from you know my clinical psychology program, being a psychologist, being a consulting psychologist, and kind of mesh those together in order to give presentations that are evidence based but also are relevant to their complex situations that first responders or other communities have. Okay. Um, it, so it seems like there's um, a clear application, like you're talking about in the first responder community, that yeah. you know they are consistently in situations that are physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically like challenging and requires a lot of resources out of them. Mm -hmm. um, do you see that there's an application of this uh, in other industries or workplaces as well? Yes. Um, so just even last week I did uh, a workshop on resilience, but it was specifically with resilience um, and interpersonal conflict. Okay. Right. At work. Um, which I think that that's, you know, most people are accustomed that there's always some sort of conflict that at work in work mm -hmm. environments. So we apply some of those same key principles of resilience in the work environment to say, how do you navigate through these spaces when you have a supervisor that's overbearing or a supervisor that is challenging to work with or a peer that's challenging or a colleague that's challenging to work with. Um, so, you know, we take all of those things that we know about resilience and apply them across different domains. Um, and that was actually in a higher education okay. uh, setting. So, you know, that, that was in a university, um, a large university and kind of just talking through yeah and those things. you know it's one of those places too where university could be challenging with interpersonal conflict because mm -hmm. of the the nature of the work that oftentimes if there's a bad actor that's often causing that conflict there's not much incentive to move on from that person as there might be in a private business because mm -hmm. there's certain protections in place things like that sure Sure, you know, and uh, I, I think that that's, that's very true. Like, you know, when you're working with government, state, all of those different type of agencies, like, you know, there are, there are other policies and procedures that affect that yeah. work environment and they affect the ability to manage conflict as well. Um, ours was, you know, our, a lot of our training doesn't touch on the policies and procedures portions of that. You know, there's HRs that's yeah. that, and we're not that. We are not HR. Yeah. What we try to do is really have the individual reflect on their conflict management style mm -hmm. and how do they manage conflict in the work environment? How do how do they um, become more resilient um, in their work environment when they? They, in some ways, they might, they have to endure. They have to stay in this job or they have to stay in this position. So the resilience piece is just one, you know, one small. I mean, I think that the, you know, our hope is to be able to move into more doing multicultural competence, okay, uh, multicultural humility, and really help people understand that piece because I, I I think like for us as our team, like that's kind of the heartbeat of where we would like to go to, okay. whether that be in higher education. 
whether that be in churches, mm-hmm. you know, that's been something that we would really like to do. But um, um, surprisingly, like, you know, sometimes churches are really resistant to that sort of stuff. So it's been a challenge to be able to get clients based off of that. Yeah. yeah. So in, uh, so to start off in one spot, in interpersonal conflict at work, mm-hmm. um, thinking to that, like, what, like, what would you suggest for most folks, especially if they're in a position where they're um, underneath someone maybe who's causing conflict, like some like general things that folks could do to mm-hmm. kind of help in that situation? Or Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that's really important to do is, um, is, is find people who are outside of the workspace that would be able to, to provide support. So having somebody who is not a part of the conflict and who might not know this person, uh-huh. you know, that you're in conflict with, just to be able to support and be able to hold some of your that weight. So is, you know, is some of the desire for that person to be outside of it is because it might cause like a venomous like cesspool in the office if it's like a a, a light-hearted coworker or something. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that like you know moving towards um, a way. If you if you have a coworker that you kind of collude with, uh-huh. right, um, towards like the boss, and you villainize this person, it actually is detrimental to the entire process, right? Because it's not helpful. Because the hope is for you to be able to reconcile the workspace in some way. Yeah. And so having more people get c- caught up in their own story, right? Like that's something that I think that you know tends to be really detrimental for people it's because you know it's just like oh well this is my story and this is my truth and this is what happened and I want to make sure that everybody knows this is my well um, yeah really trying to get to the resolve and being able to hold both of those perspectives is actually going to be really helpful and if it is the boss that is the one that's problematic I mean there's always somebody who always has a or they she he or she you know they usually have a boss so um, there's different ways there's different strategies that's some of the things that we kind of talk about Mm -hmm. we provide space for people just to be able to talk about their conflict talk about their pain talk about their own style of understanding and going about conflict because some people just stuff things some people are very you know um out there with their conflict, and they'll tell you everything about it, and uh, about you, and how you have <laughs> wronged them, and about how they are, you know, the protagonist yeah. in, this, in the story, you know. Um, we also talk about, uh, one of my professors used to use this phrase of, we don't want to put people into flat characters because usually when we think of a book or a novel there's always there's always flat characters uh-huh. or round characters where usually we make ourselves up to be the round character who's got you know uh-huh. has the best intentions who's wonderful um, and then the person that we're in conflict with we make them this flat character that their intention is to hurt their intention is to break up the organization their intention is to cause problems and they're you know is that kind outside. of like simplifying the person in the mind is like defining them just as just as that, conflict. but not as this actual like complex person who has mm-hmm. maybe different intentions or different reasons that different that things are happening or causes or whatever yeah absolutely you know and I think that that's one of the things that I mean I have to keep that in mind too you know as I'm looking and doing this research like I'm, I'm reminded of my own life 
too. It's it's self-reflective of thinking about conflict and how that comes about. And the person you know that you're upset with, like they they are a person too, right? And they have a complex process that's happening, that's contributing. Um, that you guys are co-creating that together. Um, so it's not just something that, that they're doing to you. It's something that the environment and you are co-creating. Um, and so do you think like, as far as like a private business goes where there's a little bit more flexibility, mm-hmm. like, do you help them maybe determine, let's say there is a consistent bad actor or two, mm-hmm. like the length of time that maybe they should try to reconcile this versus the time is like, we just need to cut it and get this out. We haven't done that type of work yet. Like as far as like, you know, recommend, we could do that. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there's a lot of literature about that, about, you know, having people who are problematic and um, the, the, the businesses, the leaders, the work environments that are swift with their response, you know, those are very, very um, successful businesses, you know, um, for the most part, mm-hmm. because they won't tolerate nonsense, you know. Um, that's why I think evaluations, peer evaluations, 360 assessments, um, all of those are tools that we can bring in to be able to help an organization to be able to kind of find those little blind spots, um, which is very important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, previously, when you kind of first brought up conflict, you kind of also tied in uh, multicultural competence mm-hmm. as doing, like causing some conflict or being a role in conflict. Like, can you explain a little bit what? Yeah. Like how multicultural competence might either a lack of it cause or more of it alleviate some conflict. Yeah, absolutely. I think that multicultural competence, especially in our generation, and you know, just like leaning into the future is gonna be something that is so important. One, uh, understanding the context of other, okay. the other person, of the other environment, whether it be at work, whether it be um, you know, in a church environment, whether it be in an organization, it doesn't matter what it is, you can put the context in it. But understanding, having some sort of multicultural understanding of, of what you are going into, what you're walking into, and multicultural humility to be able to reflect on our own understanding of, of culture, of our culture, of their culture, of the intersection of those cultures and how they mix with one another. Um, and I think that a lot of times we see this at work where there is an uh, intersection of cultures that are, are not doing enough research or not doing enough uh, sitting down and getting to know each other to be able to mm-hmm. understand the full context of what they are bringing into this project or what they're bringing into this work environment um, or what they're bringing into this one-on-one conversation that affects that. And so... Um, teaching on multicultural competence is really a way for us to be able to help individuals, teams, and organizations to be able to see uh, this, the importance of, of having that as a, a competency um, and something that they're continually reflecting on and continually learning because that's how yeah. culture works. It continually adapts and grows. Too, like even with that, it's, you know, uh, Americans we have, or Westerns really, Westerners, like we have 
um, I think in some of this a complex of where we feel like we are the standard. Yeah. We are the standard for, we believe that we are the standard for education or the standard for what is articulate, what is smart, what is, you know, and part of providing multicultural competence mm -hmm. education is to really systematically point and look at that bias that yeah. comes with that and how that is so um, damaging. It's damaging to us to be able to, to view people like that and it's damaging to them to be able to come into the society and to have to endure that on a continual basis, right? Mm -hmm. Because even if it's never verbalized that, let's say that you said that you felt yeah. like that, or right, they feel that. Yeah. And and that um, continually impinges on the relational capital that's gained there, mm -hmm. right? And I think that those are some of the things that we really try to help people to see and say, hey, look, like this dynamic that's creating or these beliefs that you're holding on to are actually hurting your ability yeah. to connect not only with men but with yourself right because you can't see people fully mm -hmm. right um, you know you think about our our international students like it's like the cream of the crop that's coming over here to study and you think about like they've went through so many different things mm -hmm. um, to be able to get here uh, so yeah it, it's it's really interesting we try to provide that you know that that education um, to whoever it may be, because it's it, it goes beyond just like higher education yep. can be in the work environment as well. Yeah, and and I think that the cultural shifts that we're having are very important. You know, I think that us having conversations about bias, implicit, explicit, um, privilege, right? Mm -hmm. When we think about privilege and like you know the things, the identities that we hold, that hold privilege and what that means. Right? I think about being. Uh, a male in the military, right? That that holds a privilege in, in some ways, and so how do I not apologize for the privilege that I have, but I use my privilege in order to um, employ some sort of good and some sort yeah. of equity, um, and I think that that's really important as far as for our own reflection of how do we do that? How do we do that with people? How do we do that in systems, in institutions? Um, in higher education, you know, given that example, but um, it takes reflection, it takes an awareness, and we like to provide that. We like to help provide that, you know, um, for people. Do you do you work with or plan to or hope to work with people on the? You're talking about you know multicultural, even training within current workplaces, but helping organizations become more diverse culturally, racially, those kinds of things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we would love to be able to look at that and to, you know, to be able to do the research, to be able to do the metrics, to do an assessment, an organizational assessment, to say, this is where you're at, this is where you would hope to become, how do we bridge that gap? Um, you know, I think that that's something that's really important because at the bottom line, we, we believe that diversity is a strength. Mm -hmm. And if you don't come from that perspective initially, then I think that, that that's where the rub is. Because yeah. some people don't view diversity as a strength. They, they see it as a procedure that they have to do. Um, something that, oh, I, I think i got to be diverse because uh, that's like the new An thing. officer they need to hire. Absolutely, right? Um, and we just don't, we don't hold that. We prioritize diversity because we think that it's a strength. Yeah. And when you have um, inclusivity at your work environment, inclusivity... Um, in your own personal life, we, we just think that it adds value. Um, so being able to do that is something that we would like to help yeah. enhance. Um, 
you know, I was listening to someone talk recently, and they were talking about, you know, as a business owner or someone who's who's a hiring manager or whatever, that a, a good way to help el- eliminate your biases or reduce the impact of your biases is to be very, very clear on, in your own mind, like, what are the exact types of skills and talents and things you want this person to have, mm-hmm. or else the way they explained it was you're more susceptible to fall for the person who's more like you, or the person who has the better handshake, or the person who dresses the way that you would yeah. expect to dress. Like, is that something that actually really helps businesses like, or organizations in the hiring process to be um, more accepting of candidates that are different than them? I think that clear expectations and role development mm-hmm. is critical in any hiring process to make sure that you know um, you know, that's one of the things we do is like a needs analysis of mm-hmm. like, do you really know what you need? Yeah. Right? Because a lot of times what you say you need and what you actually need might be different. And a consultant like a, us, we help people to see this is what you're saying that you need. After doing an assessment, this is what we think that you need. Yeah, the value of the objective third party. Absolutely. And so being able to like to look at that and to help people extrapolate like, okay, well, what is going to you know, best fit our needs is something that's important. Moreover, in the hiring process, a lot of times, I, I, I think that the pools that people are pulling from uh-huh. might need to be expanded. Okay, so like the ways that they're, it's not even getting to the interview and reviewing the application. You're talking about more of, they might not even be getting the full breadth of the applications they could be getting. The best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes the best and the brightest, we feel like they're only in this basket. And I think that what we have seen time and time again, if you expand that basket and look across, um, you're going to find a lot of a, a lot of value. Um, but some people are not willing to look at different baskets, and I think that that's really problematic, especially in a 21st century view in a 21st century organization. You're going to have to what you thought. Um, it's going to be, you know, this is what we need, this is, like, it, it, it might not be. So does expanding that basket kind of start with the requirements for the job? Like, absolutely. Okay. Requirements from the job of where you're looking at. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, some, some things like, you know, molecular um, biology or engineering or something mm-hmm. like that. Okay, you have a very small there's a demographic. Involved. Yeah, there's a licensing involved. There's, like, there's a small demographic, but... Um, it depends on, you know, if you're trying to put people through the pipeline, if you think about like leadership pipelines, uh-huh. like sometimes people only look for leaders who fit this mold. Um, I just wrote something recently about like, you know, like you don't have to look the part to be the part, which I think that that's what happens in a lot of these organizations. You hire people who are like you. And the reality is that you being you is great for this portion of the business, yeah. but it might not be the best thing for the whole. And so trying to figure out exactly what are what are some um, complementary, you know, um, components that you can, in order to, you know, to have a, a more robust, I guess, a, I guess a more robust, like, development of, like, what is going to help move your business and separate your business from everyone else. Yeah. Um, and usually, I think that that means that you got to expand your perspective, expand the pool that you're drawing from, the basket that's drawn from. Yeah, and that, that makes sense too because this probably happens more, you know, in either smaller teams or smaller businesses, but like 
part of the reason you're adding people is because you can't do all of the different things that need to be mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. And you start to lose that value if all you're doing is replicating yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And replicating yourself usually looks like I hire people that are like me and that I like. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, you know, there's so much literature out there that just talks about that that's not helpful. Frank Dobbins, um, he's a professor at Harvard, and he has a lot of research right now. Um, and I can't remember his his co-researcher. Uh, she is a female that lives, I think she lives from Israel. She studies in Israel or something like that. But um, they have a lot of research about diversity and inclusion and why those programs fail, uh -huh. right? And um, in ways to enhance it. And one of the ways is just being around other people, yeah. people who are not like you. You know, um, so having these like forced programs are not helpful, and that's one of the things that we kind of talk about too. It's like we don't want forced programs. We don't want you to just kind of like check the box. Yeah, right? yeah. I've been a part of those. Those then, are. Then you kind of get in the trouble where um, the NFL, for example, they have the Rooney Rule, which is you know every job search has to include a minority candidate, but often what ends up happening is like they're not seriously considering the candidate they br they're bringing in to like fix the rule like to to meet the requirements of the rule mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like there are pros and cons right where it's mm -hmm. like there are guys being talked about who never would have been talked about otherwise and other things but it's this complex situation where sometimes creating the checkbox diminishes like doesn't have quite the effect they had hoped it would have yeah i i think that that's what we're we're continually seeing mm -hmm. is that you know having these types of mandatory uh, trainings uh, when you lump it together in with something like that I, I think that it, you lose people yeah so having it um, in a different way different creative ways to deliver that training yeah or maybe not call it training or call it you know a class or call, call it something I mean there's different ways that you can kind of package it in order for it to be more of like a relational um, ordeal. And that's what we like to do. We would like to be more relational with our work because we do want to see change. We want to see people have multicultural competence and we want to see the workspace change across the board. Um, and but we don't want to be dogmatic. Kind of what you're talking about too, like uh, every year I have to take um, diversity training, mm -hmm. sexual harassment training, like all these different trainings but like one, like maybe last year I was taking, I'm like, this isn't like super like impactful or mm -hmm. helpful. And what I started to realize is this is mostly about liability. Mm -hmm. Like this is a, well, it's not our fault. We told, we gave you a training. Like yeah. it's not designed to actually like help to educate and inform me. This is designed to limit liability. Yeah. And people sniff that out. Like when, when, when organizations or employees know that like oh you're only doing this because like you know you just want to like cover yourself you yeah. know in case of uh, some, you know lawsuits or whatever like said liability um it, when it comes off it's that it falls flat you know for the most part i think that that's the tragedy in this it's like sexual harassment sexual assault at work or um uh equal opportunity diversity multicultural competence interpersonal conflict like all of these things are so important mm. right but when they're lumped together and it's sort of like okay like everybody sign in sit down here's the presentation uh, there's something that's lost and yeah so 
implementing the human component of it, slowing things down, taking time to reflect, doing role plays, right? Talking about this more in depth, large group, small group, discussion based, you know, feeling safe, right? Amy Edmondson's with her, a lot of her things that she's doing research on right now is psychological safety in our work environment. Do we feel safe enough to be able to even have this discussion, right? In a way that's actually going to be impactful. Um, uh, I think that those are those are really valuable components of the work that we do that we want to, to continue to see um, brought. And what mix do you think that your work overall is being done with teams versus leaders like like how do you guys work yeah it's kind of um like right now we've done more with like organizations like as like groups right so whether it be like you know 30 40 people um we haven't done that much with like um smaller groups mm -hmm. but that's not to say that we wouldn't but it's just been more of a classroom setting where we're kind of setting up and kind of sharing more of psychoeducational presentations workshops and speaking things like that okay um but i like the idea of doing both like i mean we have enough people on our team to be able to do a variety of different services that's one of the value of just working in teams you know we have you know we have there's seven of us um consultants we have interns now uh -huh. which has been great we've had remote interns um we have one right now we have two coming on in the summer two coming on in the fall so it's just nice to be able to have that continual um you know momentum that yeah. continues to grow and so do you guys uh would part of because i know i have a few friends who are consultants mm -hmm. and sometimes of different varieties right mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes they're almost like it'll be like a, more of a one-off like we're going to do like a, a four-hour immersion or something mm -hmm. or sometimes they're embedded not quite embedded where they're physically there but they're spending 20 hours a week with a yeah. client for like six months mm -hmm. are you guys kind of mixing and matching a lot of that too yeah we can do I mean we can do both of those so a lot of them have been the first one where it's like you know um, where we're going there for like a, a half a day training or a full day training um, you know, we do coaching, so we have a coaching practice. So people call us and say, Hey, we want individual coaching as far as career. Right? Okay. So I don't know when I, a lot of college students, like, you know, they come, they say, you know, I don't know what I want to do as far as like college, like what's the next step. Um, so we'll do a career assessment and then we'll provide some coaching along the way to be able to help them, um, achieve that goal of what they wanted to do. Okay. Yeah. And then what do you guys use for your assessment do you have like a yeah. like a thing that you've bought into to use or like a proprietary yeah. well yeah that's like that's kind of confidential but okay. um yeah but we definitely have a process we do assessments that we do um mm -hmm. and we use a variety of different assessments that you know are evidence-based that are not like a Oh, I don't want to like throw anything. Yeah, yeah I don't want to throw anything under the bus. But it's not any of the things that you took when you were in, you know, like, high school. Yeah, or or anything that you're, you know, like uh, I don't know, on online. There's like yeah. so many like little assessments and stuff. But you know, there are evidence based assessments that have worked and that are pretty, you know, renowned as far as the consulting psychology world and that's yeah. what we use. Some some of our because of the data science we have some of our assessments in general are getting pretty robust. 
mm-hmm. where um, I have a friend, he's got a PhD in uh, human resources. Oh, okay. And he, like, it's pretty well done, like, a, an assessment that essentially when a, a job is down to, like, its last four candidates, they can send them this assessment, and it'll measure fit, mm-hmm. like, based off of who they are, the way that they work, all of these different things, they get a percentage of how much they fit the, the type of person this job needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And stuff like that, where it's just the assessments are just getting kind yeah. of super interesting. Yeah, so assessments are, I, I love, like, psychometrics and psychological testing. I think that, um, just in general, like, so on the clinical side, I do a lot of forensic testing and, you know, competence to stand trial, um, fitness, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and you kind of apply the same yeah. types of things, you know, psychometrics, right? You're going to apply it to the work environment as well and allow those that data, that structured interview, um, uh, the items that they're selecting on, you know, on, on assessment is actually going to be very, very helpful and very informative mm. um, because a lot of times, like, you know, you'll just go off of, of, of something. I, I like this guy. He's nice. He's, yeah. He said his handshake was great. But there's those underlying subscales and those, um, you know, that really extrapolate, like, well, how is this going to work in this job? Yeah. Um, And then we also know that, like, having work samples is really important, Mm -hmm. right? So having a person kind of an in-basket, like, doing the job that they're going to be doing, if they do get hired, doing it there at some level during the assessment process. Mm. It's something that's just invaluable to be able to see how, how does this person work? You know, we have some pretty fun things that we get to do with people too, just to, you know, assess decision-making, assess like, how fast does this person pick up on things when they don't have a a structure, or there's no rules, like what happens in that environment? Um, And so part of that is, you know, we're trained to do that, so it's, it's not, you know, like you check your box and somebody can just fake it and kind of look through and say, oh, I think that this is what they're trying to get at, so I'm going to put this, like, um, the assessments are continually becoming more and more sophisticated, so. Yeah, and sometimes applicants are doing themselves a disservice to where there was, I think we're getting more educated on this, but there was, like, this kind of long-held belief of, like, find out what they're looking for and kind of do the gymnastics to fit what they're looking for so that way you can get the job without real recognition of doing learning on the on the applicant's part of do I even want to do this mm. there's almost so much thought of like oh I just want to get it yeah that there's not a much consideration given to do I even want this like once you have all the information do I know the scope of it mm-hmm. do I know what I'm getting myself into and that's part of having that self-awareness too and doing you know you can assess that even in the in the structured entity process mm-hmm. does this person not understand what they're getting themselves into do they understand what they're saying yes to have they counted the cost however you want to phrase it right are they actually thinking about what the job is that they're going to be conducting do they have the skills do they have the personality do they match? Do they fit mm-hmm. um, to be able to do this? Um, a lot of times, people will find through that process that, man, I thought I was going to do this, right? But I have always been told for the last 15 years that I was going to do this, but in all actuality, I really enjoy this. Um, so looking at skills comparatively to interest, that's very different. Some yeah. people are highly skilled in something, but they have very little interest. 
And so, you know, we use tests that be able to identify those things as well. Very cool. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that'll wrap it up. But okay. Thanks, yeah. for, thanks for chatting. I yeah, thanks. It was, it was yeah. super interesting stuff, super helpful. Or I appreciate you coming, man. Yeah. Like, this has been great. That was my conversation with Dr. Cedric Williams of Legacy Consulting. I really appreciated hearing about his research on occupational thriving and his thoughts on workplace conflict and intercultural competence, all things that we can always improve. If you have someone in mind that should come on the show, let me know at Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at sharpmarketingandmedia.com. And keep a lookout for the next episode of Talking With Decision Makers.